That's uh, it. Oh, That's no, cats, of course. We have the cats, yeah. Cats, we have the cats. It's Friday, April 23rd, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Paul Peters, Master Student in Civil Engineering and Podcast Warrior. And with me today is uh, Gordon Derek, Contributing Editor, Dutch News and Drenthe Buzzard Victim. Yeah, I was going to say future <laughs> Drenthe Buzzard Victim, but uh, yeah, you had already been attacked by one, didn't no, you? No, I have form on this, yes. Uh, I've, I've, uh, I've got the scars. Well, I haven't quite got the scars, but it was very... <laughs> yeah, there was a story in um, the Dutch Parks and Norden this week uh, about buzzards attacking people in Emmen and advising people to go out to, if they go out to watch out for these buzzards because they nest up in the trees and um, if you walk too close to their nesting area they get uh, very suspicious and aggressive and uh, they swoop down on you and like sort of basically just dive bomb you and try to scare you off well try to they do because they're pretty big frightening things and I, I, I have experience of this I was out running one time in Drenthe and uh, suddenly I just heard this whooshing sound over my head and I looked up and I just saw the undercarriage of a buzzard about sort of a foot a foot above my oh, head wow. sweeping yeah. away so and the, yeah. and they are pretty big birds aren't they they're big so. birds of prey yeah and um you know the, 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 there was a guy who was out cycling one time near Uppinger Dam uh, which is a bit further north in Kroninger and he said there uh, two buzzards had attacked him at once and oh, he, really? he, he just heard this uh, clunking noise on on his helmet and he wondered what it was and then he looked up and then he heard the scraping and he realized it was it was a buzzard uh sort of buzzard's claws trying to sort of grab him grab his cycling helmet and then he said well, before he knew it another one came in um well luckily he was in. wearing a helmet then because otherwise exactly. he would have uh, had uh, yeah pretty nasty scars i think yeah and there have been uh, cases of people being uh, scratched in the in the head or in the neck uh, by these buzzards and uh, yes yeah, sort of ending up with bleeding heads so it's not yeah. uh, not fun so yeah watch out so yeah so where where helmet if you're out uh, running in Drenthe this uh, this this spring I think is the advice yeah yeah, and uh, yeah, this happens all every year. I think there are uh, every year there are reports about uh, uh, these overprotective buzzards uh, attacking people, and it happens all across the country. But you said especially in uh, in Drenthe, it is. Uh, it seems it to be a very often, right? thing in Drenthe. Yeah, I mean, it happened to me. I think two or three years ago, and uh, I, I was looking. I wrote this up for Dutch News, and I was looking back in the archives, and uh, the, the, every year there's been there are a couple of reports of people being attacked by these buzzards when they walk or cycle or run too close to their nesting sites. I have to say, I found when I, when I was out running, this this buzzard was circling around above me. But when I slowed down and just walked, it kind of left me alone. So hmm. that might maybe that's maybe a, work. Yeah, that's a useful tactic. Yeah, yeah. So, maybe it was the maybe it was the fact that I was moving fast towards its um well relatively fast towards its nest that uh, that that, that, that tr- triggered the attack. And yeah, it could be. Yeah, yeah. interesting. So uh, be careful if you're in Drenthe or anywhere else. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there are frightening beasts out there. And Paul, you're one of the many people who's been enjoying uh, the, the the podcast about the David de Mordsack. Uh, so uh, t- tell us about that. Yeah, it's becoming a, an enormous hit in the Netherlands. Uh, this this podcast about uh, yeah a very very famous murder case. Uh, I believe it was the early two thousands when 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 a uh, widow in Deventer was uh, was found dead in her home, and immediately it uh, uh, it caused a lot of media attention and uh, the entire trial. And every every time there was a new suspect, it was yeah it was a big part of the news, and a lot of people uh, know about it. But this podcast reveals that there is a very a 
a very uh, well-known name uh, was behind the scenes of, of framing um, a guy for this murder who was actually, uh, yeah, innocent, who was uh, uh, the Klusjes man, as he was known in the media, the one who, um, um, yeah, how, how do you translate that in, in, in English? The handyman. Uh, the yeah. handyman, yeah, of yeah. course. The handyman of the widow and um, uh, Maurice de Hond, uh, as, uh, that's the guy we're talking about, the, uh, mm -hmm. the pollster. Um, he um, basically... Uh, was behind uh, an, an, uh, a media campaign that framed him as the murderer of, of this widow. And uh, this podcast reveals uh, his tactics and how he have done it. And yeah, uh, yeah it's, it, we always knew that it was a, he was a shady guy. But this, uh, this particular podcast really, um, uh, really, uh, really proves that. Yeah, and there's some astonishing details in this case. I mean, the, 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 to kind of set the scene, uh, uh, the, the the guy who was convicted was uh, was an accountant, wasn't it? And uh, there was some very yeah. Um, uh, and the, the evidence against him was things like uh, there'd been some there'd been some strange financial dealings, like he he'd paid her insurance money into his personal bank account. And um, and he visited her on the day, and then they found later on they found some uh, some of his blood that matched his DNA on her collar. Yeah. Um, and yet, yet nevertheless, uh, and he was convicted uh, twice, I think. I mean, first yeah, of all, the, the, the first time they didn't have the DNA evidence; uh, they used basically circumstantial evidence. But by the time um, the the, ca the case came to the appeal court, uh, the DNA was available, and the DNA kind of really um, confirmed and uh, reaffirmed uh, his guilt in the case. So, so it was pretty much an open and shut case on the face of. It, but Maurice de Hont was having none of it, and he basically fingered the uh, the the, uh, the widow's handyman for the for the killing, and came up with all kinds of uh, sort of um, much more spurious evidence. It was just really interesting to see how he kind of kept the case running, not so much uh, by uh, the strength of the evidence, but by just uh, launching a series of media campaigns, social media campaigns, setting up websites, phoning up celebrities, and going on talk shows. Um, and insinuating that um, the handyman was the actual killer, and yeah. and it was terrible for the for the yeah. handyman himself, who then found that uh, his house was being attacked. He and his partner couldn't go out in the daytime. You know, they end up splitting up over it basically, and it completely ruined his life. Yeah, I think I think this is the, the really the f the first time um, there was something called the, a troll army, right? And uh, and Maurice Dorn really. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, stirred them up against him, and uh, what's also what was also very uh, mind blowing, I think, is that Maurice de Hond um, he would uh, tip journalists about a new development or something, or something that he came up with, or something, something mm. else, uh, and this journalist would bring it uh, in a newspaper as a new development, and then all the other media would call in Maurice de Hond to comment on that, but he was the one who planted this uh, this this revelation in the first place. So yeah, it's, uh, yeah. it's also uh, I think the media. Uh, has uh, has something to uh, to reflect on um, as well, I think. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting case of uh, that illustrates how the media bubble kind of works, really. So yeah. then, you know that, um, and it's media in all countries, and uh, but but it's a particularly uh, revealing instance here. And people like Maurice de Hont, um, who work a lot with the media and know exactly how it operates, know how to kind of manipulate the system. So yeah, as you say, he he would tip off a journalist um, about uh, an intriguing development in the case, which uh, um, then of course uh, as soon as 
as that was in one newspaper, all the other newspapers then said, oh, you know, would uh, would jump up and say, oh, we, we, we've seen this story in like Telegraph, we've got to have it as well. And so they'd ring up yeah. their expert in the case, who was Maurice de Hont. So it was a self-perpetuating exactly, yeah. thing. And the actual quality of the evidence often was was pretty flimsy. But because de, de Hont was skilled at, um, his contact number was in every journalist's phone, it would generate a, a kind of new wave of publicity, which made the the evidence sound more credible than it actually was. Yeah, and Maurice Hunt was a very trusted name as well, because for decades he was the only person that uh, conducted polls in the Netherlands, and uh, he was in the news every week when he came out with a new poll, and uh, uh, a lot of people trusted him um, because of that. You know, uh, whatever Maurice de Hunt said was the truth, and uh, that is maybe the case for polls uh, uh, that may be the case for polls but not for anything else but Maurice de Hond has, has, has over the years um, used his name to for all sort of shady stories and this David to Mordsack the David to Murder case is one example but uh, more recently he did the same thing with Corona and with his mm. um, uh, 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 with, with, with his theories and um, yeah it's um, I think we should just ignore Maurice de Hond when <laughs> it's uh, about anything else than Paul um, uh, we have to admit his polls the last election was the one that was the most accurate yeah. uh, and he's, do, he's, he, he's, he, he's doing a good job with his polls but um, not with anything else we should, yeah, but that's we should just ignore him uh, when he talks about s- something else than, than seats and, uh, and votes yeah, and especially coronavirus is another thing. And it, it, he, he employs us very much the same tactics as people have pointed out with coronavirus, where he comes up yeah. with a theory and then kind of um, you know skews the evidence to fit the theory, which is yep. the opposite of what you you know what you should do as a um, if you're in scientific research. Exactly, so, and that's uh, where it comes from. Yeah, and he still insists, by the way, that this handyman is a real killer, and he's now coming up with his own podcast to kind exactly. of counter the David to uh, murder case podcast. So yeah. if, you, if your Dutch is good enough, it's well worth listening to this um, uh, the, this murder case podcast. It's a really fascinating insight into how you know how, um, in, 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 into kind of uh, mob justice, effectively, which is yeah. what it was, you know, and, and, and why actual evidence based justice is still much much more preferable to getting a bunch of people to uh, to support a campaign against uh, the guy you think did it. Yeah, but press the forward button when uh, Claudia de Bruyne starts to sing her awful acoustic song. Oh no, that's song. a highlight. That was a highlight for me. Really? I couldn't yeah. stand it. I just, I, it was unbearable. <laughs> I just skipped it immediately. Yeah, there are lots of macabre details, including, as you said, as you said, uh, as, um, the, the fact that Claudia de Bruyne actually wrote a song um, in praise of Maurice de Hont's campaign uh, at the yeah. height of the, uh, the, the yeah, yeah. The, the, that to me was the peak of the uh, David de, David de Media Zack. It's actually called yeah. the podcast, yeah. the David de Media yeah. case. So worth a listen if you if if you're if if you're able to definitely not quite an unsolved murder but a very long running saga as well <laughs> is the Binnenhof so uh, that uh, is uh, this week's Top F of the Week Paul what's, uh, what's happening there yeah, indeed. It's been a long time since we have had uh, an update on this ongoing Ophef saga, but finally there's a new episode uh, in the uh, Binnenhof Verbauings disaster. The parliamentary complex in The Hague has been in desperate need of a fresh lick of paint for decades, and in 2015 it was finally decided that the Binnenhof would undergo a 500 million euros renovation project. None of the Binnenhof's users wanted to leave the centuries-old complex, however, and the result was a years-long fight between the Tweede Kamer's former chairwoman, 
Khadija Arib and the Interior Ministry over the planning, logistics and phasing of the renovation. Another fight broke out between the Tweede Kamer and the project's architects who proposed several outrageous ideas such as the infamous Interior Tropical Garden. Uh, the architects were sacked for this but not without a handsome payment of course. And in the meantime the former Foreign Office stood empty and was made ready to function as the temporary Tweede Kamer building at a cost of 190 million euros and it included an exact replica of the parliament's chamber. Uh, the building is known as B79 and it is arguably the ugliest <laughs> building in The Hague and that also didn't help to make MPs enthusiastic about moving, uh, moving to it. But in January of this year it was finally decided that the entire Tweede Kamer would move to its temporary offices in the summer but someone on Twitter noticed the newest addition of the already very ugly building. Um, yeah, the, the new entrance, it's a sort of um, yeah, a, a collection of, of umbrella-shaped uh, canopies uh, with very thick gold and edges a photo of this circulated <laughs> on twitter and uh, yeah a lot of people um, were not very happy with it someone said it looked like uh, the entrance to a casino someone compared it to a donald trump hotel and my <laughs> personal favorite a star wars brothel yeah or perhaps a donald trump star wars theme brothel <laughs> like the combination of all those ghastly elements yeah and then yeah. then this 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 terrible building that's towering over it it's uh, <laughs> it's it is a remarkable sight indeed we're gonna have to link to this tweet of this of we this should photo. yeah we, 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 yeah. Yeah, we need to show this image uh, in all its glory yeah. yeah, there were some people that were positive about it. Someone said he, uh, he was happy that at least they added some color to the concrete monstrosity. And I think uh, he had a point there. But the uh, Rijksgebouwdienst, the government's real estate department, said in a response that the entrance isn't golden, but brass yellow. Oh, so, well. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, that is, that, is that supposed everything. to make it better? I'm not quite sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. Yeah, I think I think Donald Trump also uses, uh, uses uh, brass instead of real gold, doesn't he? Yeah. I was going to say, yeah. Yeah, it's all very well saying you're going to add some color to a concrete monstrosity, but does it have to be this color? That's the question. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> of all the colors you could have picked, you know, given anything that goes with concrete, and, yeah. and you had to go uh, for like sort of Trumpian, uh, Trumpian fake gold, basically what it yeah. is, isn't it? Yeah. 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 I had I, I had a proposal as well because it sort of reminds me of these these um, uh, uh, these sticker um, how do you call that uh, these bands with with uh, with uh, information of of a theater. Who's yeah. playing in a theater? And uh -huh. my my proposal is that they should just uh, put a live uh, transcript of what is uh, said in the debate on this uh, on this <laughs> band, so that people yeah. can can follow the debates while they are uh, vomiting of, of the ugliness of uh, of the site <laughs> they are uh, <laughs> looking at. Yeah, yeah. Well, they could. They, it could. It'd be a good place just to post the daily coronavirus uh, numbers. Actually, given this, uh, <laughs> given this on a kind of slightly queasy, sick, sick-making uh, color scheme already. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah lots, lots of possibilities, indeed. So, as you say, the, the, the kind of, if anything, I think uh, the uh, the fact that it looks like a building site is its kind of redeeming quality. Really, I mean, the, the, the actual sort of sand and concrete around the base is probably the most attractive thing about the site right now. <laughs> Yeah, and do you see this this piece of art got, that they yeah, protected with? Yeah, them? and also these kind of sort of Star Trek style sliding doors yeah. they got at the entrance as well. Yeah, because yeah, everything yeah. about it is terrible. <laughs> this is so weird. It's so weird. <laughs> uh, poor, poor. I, I, yeah, I, I, I feel sorry for all the MPs that have to spend uh, the, the next fifteen years in this building because that's probably how long it's going to take to renovate the entire binhof. Yeah, also, it's almost worse than being quarantined. 
This week, the corona numbers gave absolutely no reason to announce relaxations of the lockdown rules, so the cabinet did exactly that. Uh, the formation plunged into chaos yet again after revelations by RTL News about not one, not two, but three party leaders. A photographer in London was attacked with heavy machinery and cats might be the only ones with a curfew in the near future. After a four-month lockdown, the first tentative steps out of the pandemic were announced this week by the Dutch government. From next Tuesday, the curfew is being lifted, you'll no longer need to make an appointment to go to a shop, and bars and restaurants can open up between midday and six o'clock, so just too early for, to serve bitterbollen. Which <laughs> yeah. I think was the biggest outrage of the week, wasn't it? For I was very outraged by this. Mark I saw you very outraged, yeah. Bitterballer. I mean, that's the foundation of his entire party, <laughs> eating bitterballer. He, he's, he basically just cancelled Dutch culture, I think. Yeah, yeah. That did. I, I like the way that Ritter said that it was the idea was that people would just sit and drink coffee until five o'clock and then pour themselves one glass of wine and go yeah. home. Yeah. Uh, he, he obviously hasn't, he's obviously never been, he obviously hasn't been to a bar for a long time. No, indeed. <laughs> As previously announced, university and college students can go back to class one day a week, and the hope is that more rapid testing will allow more physical education. The number of mourners allowed at funerals will rise from 50 to 100, which uh, could come in handy. And yeah. driving theory tests Prince can Philip, start again. Prince Philip died just too late. He did. Uh, Prime Minister Mark Rutte said that the changes were responsible risks and depended on people sticking to the basic rules. Wash your hands, keep your distance and take a test if you get flu-like symptoms. So, uh, yeah, that sounds like good news. Yeah. Uh, that must mean that infections are going down. It must mean it, mustn't it? Yeah, you yeah. would think that uh, given that they, that they said when they introduced the curfew in January that the idea was to get the infections down so that they could reopen, that yeah. uh, the infections would be down now. But actually, no, they're going up. Um, and in fact, I think uh, on Thursday, they hit the highest uh, level of the, of the year so far. Um, and yep. they're rising. So the outbreak yep. management team advised the cabinet not to relax the rules until the cases actually started to go down. But Rutter said he was sufficiently encouraged by the RAVM's models, um, even though the RAVM said you shouldn't use models like that. Uh, but he said that uh, these are responsible risks, and as long as everyone stuck to the rules, everything would be okay. Uh, Health Minister yeah. Hugo de Jonge weighed in as well. He said the number of infections was less relevant now anyway, because people are being vaccinated, or people have contracted the disease, uh, and uh, therefore they've uh, acquired immunity. And meanwhile, though, some hospitals have been cancelling heart and cancer surgery to make space for extra intensive care beds, and according to the Volkskrant, hospital staff in the big cities have been asked to cancel any plans they have for the upcoming school hospitals. Holidays. So that's where we are. So, uh, Gordon, uh, uh, currently there are 839 people uh, in an IC uh, unit in uh, in the Netherlands. Uh, yes. Do you do you can you remind me when was the last time we had so many people uh, 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 on on the intensive care? Yeah, that was almost exactly a year ago. Um, yeah. At the, to, on, on the way down from the first wave. So during the second April wave, April 29 was the last time. Yeah. And at that point, of course, cases uh, the intensive care uh, capacity was, uh, was was falling quite fast because the lockdown that we had then was actually working. Yeah. Whereas whereas now we have a lockdown which uh, is which doesn't work. Which, which, which uh, yeah, which, which does work up to a point because we've had infections rising more slowly than they did in the autumn. But nevertheless, you have to get your cases to come down before you can ease your lockdown. But see, it seems as if the government has listened. Uh, it has had two choices basically: listen to the healthcare sector, who is saying the hospitals are full, where we're running at absolute capacity, and by the way, um, fifteen percent of our staff are off sick because they're exhausted, which means we've actually got fewer available intensive care beds. Or listen to the bars and the restaurant owners saying, please let us open up. And they've chosen the second option. 
Yeah, it's 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 hard to to follow the government's logic here, isn't it? Yeah, totally. It just seems to make absolutely no sense. I mean, on Thursday there were nine thousand six hundred cases, um, and yet we're now lifting the curfew. And there are just loads of bizarre um, consequences of this. So from next week, if you've got teenage children, you can take them to a bar in the daytime, but you can't take them to school because the secondary schools are still <laughs> shut. It just seems to make absolutely no sense. And uh, the, 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 there are a lot of uh, loud voices out there saying that uh, you know, everyone's sick of the lockdown. We need to lift the restrictions. The economy is being destroyed. And that is seems to weigh more. Um, uh, yeah, the, 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 that seems to be given more significance than you know, the fact that um, the hospitals are full of patients. And yeah. you know, people, and not just people who are, to be fair, I mean, the, the death rate is now coming down because of the vaccination. So fewer people are dying. But you still have people who are, ending up with uh, very serious long-term health conditions because of coronavirus and yeah. you know, nobody seems to be speaking up for those people either yeah spending spending some time or spending a long time on the on the nice sea uh, yeah that's devastating for your health and for your long-term health of course yeah it takes a huge long time to recover and some people yeah, yeah even some people who actually don't go to hospital end up uh, you know quite quite seriously um ill from um you know, from long covid it's a it's a well-known phenomenon yeah but uh yeah you mentioned the vaccines there is better news on that front isn't it yeah there is definitely better news on vaccines the government's pressing ahead with the janssen vaccine uh that's because the european medicines agency concluded this week there was a small risk of blood clots from the vaccine but it was lower than for astrazeneca uh, astrazeneca uh, remember is only being used now for the over 60s the janssen is a single shot vaccine so once it starts uh, being introduced into the mix the number of people who are fully vaccinated is going to start going up faster and the vaccination rate is now um, much higher as well, about ten, about a hundred thousand uh, shots of shots a day, so seven hundred uh, more than seven hundred thousand a week. And with Janssen on the stream, and there's more deliveries of the Pfizer vaccine coming in as well, there is still a decent chance that Hugo de Jong will meet his um, much lauded <laughs> target of offering everybody a first jab by sometime in the beginning of July. But there is one spanner in the works here, which is that if you've had a positive coronavirus test, you can't be vaccinated for another four weeks. Oh, and really? given the number of people who are infected right at the moment, that's quite a sizable yeah. proportion of the population. And that could be a serious stumbling block on the road to getting everybody vaccinated by July. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the answer vaccine is um, uh, got a green light uh, after all. So that means that yeah. we can call it the Janssen vaccine again. Exactly, right? yes. We don't have to call yeah. it Johnson Johnson. Yeah, on yeah. the Andy okay. Murray principle that we discussed last yeah. week. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there's also something about the Indian variant. What's that about? Yeah, yeah. there is this uh, alarming new strain of the virus that uh, is um, on the rise in India. And uh, cases in India have uh, gone up very sharply in the last couple of weeks. I remember who got a younger warning about people bringing exotic variants of the virus back from their holidays this summer. So when you hear that India's had 300,000 cases a day in the last couple of days and more than 2,000 deaths a day now, you might think it would be a good time to stop people flying in. And that's what other countries like the UK and Australia have done. But according to De Jong, it's not necessary because we already consulted the RIVM on this and they said it's uh, a low risk. When when did we consult us? <laughs> yeah, that's the question. Is that when did we consult the RIVM? It was March the 26th. <laughs> it's a month ago. Yeah, it's a month ago, and at that point, of course, there were sixty thousand infections a day. So somebody still hasn't worked out how exponential growth works. And unfortunately, he is the minister for public health. 
<laughs> yeah, and also uh, the, the 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 first uh, uh, jab with the uh, uh, Janssen vaccine was uh, was given uh, earlier this week, and uh, of course you can't have we can't have a vaccine uh, shot in the Netherlands without Hugo de Jonge standing beside it for a photograph uh, for for a photo opportunity, and again he was there, and yep. everyone in the photo was wearing a mask except one person, <laughs> and that was Hugo de Jonge. There is now actually a whole I think somewhere in the health ministry there must be a whole wall of photographs. <laughs> of Hugo de Jonge, who famously, of course, said he didn't go in for symbolic jabs. Now photographs of Hugo de Jonge standing next to somebody, an unmasked Hugo de Jonge, standing next to somebody being given a symbolic first jab with the latest yeah. vaccine. Yeah. But yeah. You, could, you could actually play... I think we should release a quartet set of uh, Hugo de Jonge photographs <laughs> of him standing next to people receiving vaccines. That's a very good idea. Yeah, yeah, I think it could yeah. be a Christmas bestseller this year. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Anyway, Jonga said he would look at the Indian uh, issue again, whether or not to ban flights, if the World Health Organization decides that the Indian variant is is more dangerous than we thought. Um, but I think uh, when two thousand people are dying a day, uh, maybe it would yeah. be good. To, this might be a good moment to uh, uh, take a cautious approach. Another week, another political crisis. After the first formation attempt failed miserably, after Verkenner Kaisa Olongren accidentally showed her confidential notes about CDA MP Pieter Omtzigt to the press, and Prime Minister Mark Rutte miraculously resurrected at Easter after his political life looked to have come to an end twice, formation veteran Herman Cenk Winning was brought in yet again to bring back trust, peace and quietness at the Binnenhof. And it looked like the new informateur was succeeding in this if it wasn't for RTL News which published a damning article on Wednesday about a decision made by the Ministerial Council in November 2019 to withhold crucial information about the tax office and the child benefit scandal from Parliament and therefore deliberately breaking the Constitution. The secret minutes of the cabinet meetings, uh, which were obtained by RTL News, shows ministers were concerned about setting a precedent if they agreed to compensate thousands of parents who had been wrongfully accused of fraud because they made mistakes when applying for childcare support. The parents were forced to pay back the money to the tax office and were not given an opportunity to correct their mistakes or defend themselves against the unsubstantiated claims of fraud, which often led to their financial ruin. They were in, they were, in most cases, they were not even told they were accused of fraud, right? Yeah, they were just told they had to pay back the money and they weren't given a reason. And it was no. only when they, yeah, when a lawyer got involved and started asking questions and demanding to know why they suddenly had these enormous tax demands, uh, repayment demands, uh, that, uh, that they started to, that the blasting things very reluctantly said, um, yeah, told them that they were um, suspected of fraud or that I think there was a ruling that said anyone who owed 3,000 euros or more um, was uh, was labeled as, um, as, um, as fraudulent or deliberate. Uh, debt. Um, yeah, the standing if, policy of the tax office, indeed. But yeah, yeah the, the, and, when and, you have childcare you know support, exactly, when you know about the costs of out-of-school childcare, you can get up to three thousand euros in in a couple of weeks. Yeah, so automatically, whenever there was something wrong with the application, they were automatically labeled as fraudsters. And uh, that also meant that they were not given the right to um, uh, uh, to, to correct themselves or even get informed of, of, of why they had to pay back their money. So yeah, it was... Exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah, they couldn't correct themselves. They couldn't appeal against the decision. They also couldn't pay the money back in installments. They had to pay it back in one go or otherwise the debt just uh, you know, mounted up. And, you know, if you, if you know how the system of fines and uh, the cumulative fines and debts works in this country you you, you get you get hit with um you know with basically punitive interest if you don't pay back your debts promptly 
And uh, yeah, yeah, people people were ruined. They had to sell their houses. Their relationships broke down. Um, and yeah, th- th- they were left with crippling debt. Yeah. So so a perfect storm if 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 the wave was made entirely out of shit. Yes. Um, and the vessel as well, by the way. Um, but um, the entire cabinet resigned in January over the scandal after a parliamentary investigative commission concluded that the families had suffered an unparalleled wrong. And I still think that is a little bit of an understatement. Yes. Uh, Etiel's revelations shows that the entire cabinet, including finance minister and CDA leader Bobke Hoekstra and minister for foreign trade and D66 leader Sigrid Kaag, decided to withhold information from the Tweede Kamer. The leaked ministerial council minutes also show that ministers complained about CDA MP Pieter Omzicht, who played a crucial role in uncovering the child benefit scandal. The ministers complained his campaign on behalf of the families was overzealous and unfair and Bobke Hoekstra said at one point that we try to make Omzicht see reason. Uh, the Ministerial Council is held every Friday at the Binnenhof in the Trevesaal. The agenda is top secret and its minutes usually remain under lock and key for 25 years. So that there, that there is a leak of the Cabinet's minutes is, is really uh, yeah, quite unprecedented. Yeah, and of course there is now uh, several MPs uh, are demanding that the minutes should be should be published of, uh, of this Cabinet meeting. Right. Yeah, uh, 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 almost all the entire um, opposition uh, uh, is demanding that now, indeed. And they also want an emergency debate before the May recess, uh, which starts on Friday. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, this is blocked by uh, the former coalition parties who uh, remain to have a, a majority in the Tweede Kamer. Uh, the cabinet is given a chance to uh, give their account of what happened in a letter to parliament. Uh, and uh, only after that, a debate will be held. Uh, SP MP Renske Leiter pointed out that Rutte had said in the debate about the cabinet's resignation that he agreed with the with all the conclusions of the investigative committee uh, apart from the one about information being withheld for political reasons so yeah that's uh, that's uh, uh, that turns out to be a lie and also PVV leader Wilders said he demands new elections yeah and how do the ministers respond uh, to the latest revelations yeah the 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 timing of the rtl's article was pretty interesting because it was right before hoekstra kaag and rutte were scheduled to meet with herman chenk willink in the stadhouderskamer at the binnenhof for the continuation of the formation talks uh, hoekstra told journalists he had spoken with chenk willink about rtl's re- revelations and said there is an immense task ahead for politicians to regain trust and rtl's article does not improve this trust he said also an understatement i think yes um, Hoekstra also said that an, uh, Hoekstra also has another problem because in the campaign, uh, in the election campaign, he claimed that he always stood side by side with Peter Omzicht, who um, uh, he got 40% of the CDA's votes. So yeah, now the leaked minutes uh, clearly showed the, uh, a different picture, and that will uh, definitely um, uh, 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 give him some hard time within his own party, I think. Yeah, and uh, Hoekstra on his questions outside Parliament as well said he he wouldn't answer questions about his role as a minister because he wasn't he was there in his role as leader of the CDR as if uh, like he was uh, like he was two separate people somehow. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That's the that's the strange thing about uh, the formation. We are in a sort of uh, constitutional twilight zone. We have ministers that are MPs, and we have ministers that are political leaders as well, and that go campaign. Yeah, so it's it's always very complicated, and uh, it gives these people a, a very uh, convenient uh, way to avoid questions. They just can say, "Well, yeah, I'm here now as a different person or in a yes. different role," and then they can can go on. But he he also didn't answer anything. As a CDA leader, uh, I have to admit. So yeah, yeah, yeah he's he, ba- he, he, 
Yeah, yeah, because yeah, obviously, even as yeah, because in his capacity as ADR leader, of course, that, that that still leaves the questions open about why he spoke in that way about his party colleague Peter Omsicht. Exactly, and he he refused to answer these questions as well. Yeah, so. yeah, he basically said, "I'm putting on the special hat now, and uh, and that yeah. means I'm I'm not answering any questions." Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder. Yeah, it's, it reminded me a bit of of this um, of, of Super Mario, right? Where you yeah. have these boxes where you can uh, uh, jump against to, and then this special hat comes <laughs> out. And uh, yeah, he has a lot of special hats um, uh, to choose from. Yeah, he's, he's he's very good at switching between hats. In the... Yeah, uh, and, and then uh, and then there was Sigrid Kach, the uh, leader of Desenzestig, uh, uh, which of course yes. is now the second largest party after the election. Um, there are questions for her, about her her movements as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. She uh, she basically also refused to answer questions from journalists uh, after her meeting with Cenk Willink. Um, they asked her a lot of questions, and after a while, she only wanted to say that she didn't remember if she was actually present at that particular cabinet meeting in November 2019, or that she was abroad, for example. Um, and she pointed out, <laughs> she said something <laughs> like, "I didn't know if I was there or if I was was abroad in, for example, Niger." Yeah. Uh, do do you have that problem a lot, Paul? I mean, you know, when, when, yeah. when, when People say, well, when people say to you, you know, uh, where were you last Thursday? You say, you know what? I can't remember if I was uh, if I was at home in my house or if I was in Niger. Could be, could be, either. yeah, <laughs> could be anywhere. Yeah, she just wanted to point out that she is Mrs. Worldwide. I think. Yeah, but, but then the, the amusing thing was they showed her diary for that month, and she'd only actually been abroad twice. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Yeah, luckily there is something called the official agenda, and that showed that she was indeed present at the Traversaal in that November cabinet meeting, um, and uh, she. She had been in Niger, but that was uh, February in that year, I think. Yeah. Right. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Does, I, I think during matter. that month, she she was away. Yeah, she went abroad four times in November, and twice was to Brussels. So that's not really abroad, yeah. is it? That's just like down the road. No, and then no, she had two yeah, actual two actual overseas flights. As the you know Minister for International Development, you might have thought she'd actually travel a bit more than twice a month. Yeah, I thought so too. Actually, yeah. yeah. And then Rutte also had a meeting with Herman Cenk Willink. Uh, that one almost lasted two hours, even though uh, the meeting was only scheduled to last uh, one hour. So yeah, they had a lot, of, lot to talk about. Afterwards, she told journalists that there was nothing unusual or improper about the account of events the cabinet compiled. Uh, he added that the cabinet will carefully draw up a response to the many questions MPs had, and that he's personally willing to publish the ministerial council's minutes, but he has to consult with other ministers before that can actually be done. So yeah, it's uh, unprecedented times indeed uh, yeah. uh, we uh, had these unprecedented but uh, Mark Rutter is uh, passing the buck onto other ministers which is not unprecedented no indeed um, <laughs> what's also interesting is that we've talked a lot about the Rutter doctrine right uh, yeah. the um, sort of uh, 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 Mark Rutter doesn't want to um, uh, inform par parliament and doesn't want to answer yeah. uh, uh, MPs questions and he, he doesn't like keeping notes either and he doesn't like to keep notes just yeah. just because of this. But the Rutte doctrine um, is actually the Rutte three doctrine now, as as NSA put it, because not only uh, Mark Rutte is involved with this, but also the leader of D66 and the leader of CDA. They were all there at this ministerial meeting, and they have all decided uh, uh, to do this. Mm. Um, so yeah, they um, these parties no longer have. Uh, th these parties can no longer criticize Rutte for his doctrine because they are part of it. Yeah, this is true. So uh, yeah, devastating results for the for the formation as well. I think uh, uh, we thought 
uh, earlier this week that everything, all the dust was settling down and that we could start over again. But yeah, this is really another bomb under the formation process. Yeah, it is. And uh, you, you wonder how it's going to go from here because uh, we, we, we've got, um, yeah, th- this whole Tuslaken affair is lingering on. Uh, we're still deep in the coronavirus crisis. We've got inquiries coming up into the, the Kronia gas drilling, into the Havija bombing. You know, the, the, there's an awful lot of, um, yeah, the, 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 we've got a long way to go up shit creek before we get out of it i think yeah it's um yeah, i stopped making predictions because every time i do um will it will not come out so uh <laughs> we're just gonna have to wait and see what happens yeah it's that time again when we say thank you very much to our wonderful patrons who help to keep the wheels of this podcast turning like a wagon load of uh, Janssen vaccines <laughs> We're very grateful for your generous and continuing support as we struggle in vain to make sense of the government's coronavirus strategy or the Tuslachen affair or indeed the obscure criteria used to classify immigrants, which we'll get to shortly. To show how grateful we are, we like to give new patrons a shout out on the podcast and invite you to ask us any questions you may have about life in the Netherlands. This week we welcome two new patrons, so thank you to Kate Murphy um, and to Micah Reimer. Uh, thanks very much to both of you for your very generous Thank support. Thank you. Neither of them uh, had a question for us, uh, but if there's anything you'd like to ask us or anybody else, uh, please do get in touch. And uh, if anyone else out there would like to sponsor us or uh, indeed ask us a question, log on to patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash dutchnewsnl. I hope they, uh, they will have... Uh... Uh, a question after all because they're always fun to answer I think yeah yeah so it's always a highlight of the thing, of the, of the podcast answering the questions uh, a lot more fun yeah. than trying to decipher the uh, <laughs> trying to tell you what the latest coronavirus numbers are police are investigating an attack on a press photographer whose car was rolled over near Lunteren in Gelderland the photographer was driving home with his girlfriend uh, late one evening when he took a diversion to check out a report of a car on fire Dashcam footage showed four people surrounding the car wielding sticks before a shovel truck appeared and pushed the car over and rolled it into a ditch with the two people still inside. Two other journalists who were on the scene were also threatened by the men. Police said the driver of the digger has been arrested, along with another man who threatened the journalists. A police spokesman said, quote, We gave the highest priority to tracking down and prosecuting cases of aggression and violence against journalists. Journalists have to be able to do their job. Yeah, the uh, the images of the dash cam, they were just the most terrifying thing yes. I've seen in a while. Uh, you, you, it's, it's late at night. Uh, you see uh, that, the ma- that there are a couple of people surrounding the cars with sticks indeed. And then all of a sudden you see these headlights coming from a distance with, with and that turns out to be this, uh, this, uh, this shovel. And um, yeah. uh, 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 it approaches it with a very, very high speed. It's just the, the most, most very shocking thing to see. Yeah, and you see the car turn from the inside. And I mean, the first time I watched it, I couldn't work out what's happening. You suddenly just saw the screen sort of went dark, and you thought they may have sort of dropped a lump of concrete on it. And then you realize it's actually that it's the road coming up as the car yeah. spins over. It's just about, and, and you hear the people inside screaming. And the guy says he's now got constant pain in his back, so I'm not surprised. You know, must have severe whiplash injuries. Um, and yeah. it's just a really horrible thing uh, to, to have happened. And so actually, to, 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 to turn up with a truck, I mean, how, how they, where, 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 did they just have a truck just kind of on standby when they, they, they happened to be there doing something else? Um, you know, I, I think, I think this... The this car was burning uh, on the, in the countryside somewhere. So yeah. it was in Lunteren, but it was somewhere on a farm or something. And I think it was just 
someone who lived nearby and uh, you know uh, farmers have have machinery so yeah. i think that that was uh, that was where, where where it came from so someone just like um, dialed up somebody a friend who had a shovel truck and said uh, yeah and, and got them to go down there and uh, and roll over the car yeah and i just don't understand where this aggression comes from i mean it's yeah. just it's just a, uh, yeah well it's a car on fire but you know that attracts you and that's logic right I, yeah. I don't understand why 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 you would react in such a way no. and also these uh, these these suspects they are 21 and 35 years old so they're pretty young as well especially this 21 year old i mean why would you have this aggression to a photographer who is just one of these local photographers, right? So usually it's uh, these this, uh, uh, these uh, one one two websites. They sometimes have photos of something that happens in the in the in the area, and it was just one of these people that volunteered. Yeah, there. exactly. He, he just picked up a tip. He probably was just you know the, uh, he, he or his girlfriend were probably just 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 reading Twitter or reading some kind of message feed and saw there was yeah. a car on fire nearby. Thought let's go and check this out. But you don't expect that to happen. But there, there does seem to be this you know, a real kind of climate of aggression towards journalists and towards the media you see you know nos have had to cover up their logos and their trucks now because they get attacked when they go out to report on stories and you, you see the journalists who hang around outside the parliament complex now often clash with people who are out there protesting and it's yeah it's a really ugly trend and yeah. it's a recent trend as well you know on the whole people evening quite um you know even when you turned up to report on quite uh, distressing events on riots or whatever people tend to leave you alone as a journalist but now that 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 doesn't seem to be the case anymore you know you, you, journalists are increasingly becoming targeted uh, at these at these incidents yeah yeah and i'm really really curious what what the real motive of these these men was because yeah at some point if you are if you are a protester on the museum plan and you're protesting against against uh, uh, the, the, the corona rules, for example. I understand that you have some sort of distrust against the media, but this was just a random uh, car fire in Lunteren of all places, which yeah. is, by the way, also the geographical center of the Netherlands. Um, uh, and I don't, un- I mean, I understand that uh, these kind of demonstrations attract uh, people who feel this way against journalists, but I don't understand why uh, uh, these people, uh, and I wonder if these people have in Lunter have the same motive as as uh, as the people that are threatening NOS people on the museum plan, for example. I, I'm wondering, but it's, yeah. uh, it does seem to suggest they do. But, but it's quite yeah. a disturbing trend, yeah. And perhaps it's because 20 years ago, when you didn't have smartphones, you didn't have social media networks. The way to get publicity for your cause or for your event was to have it featured in the mainstream media. But now you don't need them anymore, so they've become no. people now perceive them as you know as 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 as, as part of the establishment or as the enemy because they want what they want is to put their own pictures up on their own twitter feed and you know the the the, the kind of uh, the, the, the 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 standard media who are trying to do objective reporting uh, conflict with that with that purpose so you, you, yeah. you so you're perhaps more hostile towards them National Statistics Agency CBS has confirmed it's going to stop using the terms Western and non-Western to describe immigrants because they are divisive and set people apart. NSA reported on Tuesday, citing a policy recommendation document from the WRR, a key government advisory body which it has in its possession. The document says government agencies should no longer make the distinction because it lacks scientific grounds and has negative associations. The CBS decision comes in the wake 
speak of a row about its cultural diversity barometer, which Utrecht University was planning to use uh, to divide its staff into Dutch, Western and non-Western. The WRR says the terms sets the group apart as not from here. Uh, the distinction between Western and non-Western is therefore not a neutral juxtaposition, but a ranking, according to the WRR, particularly for the second generation who was born and bred in the Netherlands, but are still labeled as non-Western. Um, categorizing people according to their ethnic background may still have its uses, however, for instance, when looking at the uh, prevalence of, of diabetes, a disease which is more common among the people with Turkish and American backgrounds. The WRR suggests alternatives could include comparing groups with the whole of the Dutch population or specific migrant groups with all inhabitants with a migrant background. It is not the first time the government agency's vocabulary is adapted. In 2016, the word allochtone and its its native equivalent autochtone were also ditched. Those terms were introduced by sociologist Hilde Verweij-Jonker in 1971 as a neutral description of immigrants, foreigners and labor immigrants, but it had become increasingly under fire and particularly for its use to describe third generation and fourth generations. Yeah, think officially you were an autochtone if one of your parents or grandparents were of um, uh, were was born in uh, was born abroad i think yeah. right yeah that's basically it yeah the, the, the new classifier is allochtone which leads to some bizarre um yeah um yeah there's some bizarre anomalies but uh, yeah i think these I'm, I'm, I'm amazed that these umbrella blanket terms have lasted for so long you know this distinction between western yeah. and non-western um just just doesn't really seem to have any um, real relevance to you know, the makeup of, uh, of of society today. I mean, and it's really weird things like the, like the Western category includes people from Japan, because and Indonesia know, and Indonesia. Now, maybe back yeah. in the seventies, there was a valid distinction there. I mean, it tended to be people from Indonesia, obviously, were people who were um, returning from they'd been born in the colonies and were then returning. But increasingly these days, migrants from Indonesia are people who are native Indonesians migrating to the Netherlands. Um, yeah. So and, and and Japanese migrants again, you know, Japan was uh, you know, it was it's basically a distinction between desirable and non-desirable migrants. What it comes down yeah, to, exactly. which is not really a scientific yeah. any kind of scientific description. And if you do need, as you say, uh, to classify people by origin, for example, for you know, maybe for reasons to do with you know, with the social the socioeconomic status, you know, so for people who who arrived as labor migrants from countries like Turkey and Morocco in the seventies tend to be lower down the social order than, uh, than, than other migrants and that's one thing but just to have these kind of uh, very uh, selective subjective descriptions um, yeah d d d I think that's really an untenable thing now yeah, and what you said, the word allochtone was, was only used for undesirable migrants. But, yeah. uh, you know, technically speaking, and it was always fun to point out to people, was that, for example, um, the entire Dutch royal family was allochtone, yeah. according to the official uh, definition, because, uh, you know, all, uh, uh, Queen Maxima was born in uh, Argentina, so her children are allochtone. And Willem Alexander's father was German, so that made him um, uh, an allochtone as well. And, uh, yeah, that yeah. Uh, there was always... Uh, 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 people were not aware of the official definition. They just uh, uh, used the bad connotation of it uh, to describe people. Yeah, and it, it also it's sort of in, in, in encourages kind of uh, you know, fixation on uh, breaking down things like the crime statistics into allochtone yeah. and autochtone. And inevitably, if you have this kind of catch-all term allochtone. Uh, which includes uh, all the migrants in the country for, or from one specific, it's particularly difficult to talk about non-Western allochtone, then you get a very skewed picture. 
um, yeah. of you know obviously people again yeah migrants especially first generation migrants um, from um, uh, from certain countries uh, t- 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 tend to be lower down the um, uh, the social scale and therefore t- tend to feature more uh, strongly not just in crime statistics but also in things like uh, poor health outcomes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think this, uh, it's not. It's not really about. And also, people said it was a political decision, as if creating these terms in the first place was not a political decision. When clearly it was, um, and it's just really, yeah, of course, a political decision. But it's reflecting the uh, the politics and the, the demographics of the society that you have today, rather than what things looked like in 1970. Some sports news. Uh, Ajax won the Cannes-Febe Cup at the weekend. They beat Vitesse Arnhem 2-1, and if everything goes to plan, they'll wrap up their 35th Eredivisie title this weekend. Uh, they snatched victory in the cup final with a goal in injury time by David Neres, um, and now, assuming they've won their game in hand on Thursday evening against Utrecht, they'll just need to beat Azad Alkmaar in Amsterdam on Sunday to claim the league title. Uh, 7,500 fans will be in the stadium to cheer them on as one of the government's coronavirus field lab experiments. <laughs> So and the, the, another thing, so, so coronavirus will be cheering with them as well, I think. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, uh, the clubs offer the tickets free to season ticket holders as a gesture of thanks, uh, and that includes, interestingly, season ticket holders who asked for a refund because they haven't been able to go to any games this season. <laughs> they felt like they had to. Mm. They, 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 it would be unfair to exclude them. Mm, yeah. Well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, 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 something that uh, everybody was talking about today, but I missed everything about it. So I don't know what it's about, but there was something about the European Super League, right? Yeah, the European Super League. This is uh, an idea that uh, was raised by 12 um, of the richest clubs in Europe <laughs> and lasted uh, and lasted about as long as the Dutch cabinet formation. Uh, because uh, <laughs> at the start of the week, uh, the 12 clubs uh, unveiled their dastardly plan to steal European football, basically, and uh, to, to hive off a Super League of, they said, 15 elite clubs. Uh, they said three clubs will be joining them shortly afterwards, although it looks like they won't be now. Um, and then they would add five clubs to the league that qualified through national competitions. Um, now, there were six English clubs uh, in this plan. Um, there are also three clubs from Spain and three from Italy. Everyone else immediately condemned it, uh, including football administrators, Boris Johnson, all the other top European clubs. Basically, when you're told that by Boris Johnson that your idea is morally deplorable, then <laughs> you know you've really gone off the rails, effectively. Exactly, yeah. Uh, I, I, I would have advised them to just uh, hire Herman Cenk Willink to <laughs> sort everything out I mean, yeah it's kind of just renegotiate with UEFA and, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, uh, so yeah FIFA said that players who took part would be banned from the World Cup um, and uh, within 48 hours of the whole plan being unveiled uh, the, um, the clubs uh, started swiftly backtracking and now nine of them have pulled out Ajax had been mooted uh, in some quarters as a possible partner, but the club said in a statement uh, it wasn't interested, and in fact it was disappointed by the plan. Uh, they were backing UEFA's proposals for an expanded Champions League instead. We are very disappointed in this sudden and late turnaround that fellow directors of some top international clubs have made this weekend, with the result that a very uncertain period threatens the horizon of European football, Ajax chairman Eben <laughs> van der Sar said. So that was it, the, the, the Super League that never was. <laughs> yeah, the Super League that wasn't never was. Yeah, I I um uh, I understood. Well, I didn't understand one of that that never happens, but I didn't understand one of the dispelled headlines. Uh, but it was because it referred to the Super League. Yeah, I can't even remember what the joke was, but that was why <laughs> I didn't understand it. 
Keeping cats in at night will keep more young birds safe, particularly now the breeding season is in full swing, according to Delft City ecologist Dini Tubbing. Uh, he proposes a curfew for cats that could start at 8 p.m. Tubbing hopes his proposal will start a public discussion and people will think about what they are doing. By leaving their cats to roam at night, owners are harming the bird population, which, in cities in particular, are having difficulty enough to breed, according to bird protection organization Vogelbescherming. The Netherlands is home to between 2 and 3 million cats and some 10,000 feral cats and strays. Between them, they kill some 18 million birds a year, posing a threat to some 370 species. It wouldn't be a curfew in a sense of checks and fines but it is important that people realize that cats go after birds and many other small animals such as rabbits mice and bats i just love the whole idea that uh, the boas would go out finding cats <laughs> for being out of trade <laughs> oh yeah birds are particularly vulnerable they can hear cats during uh, the day and sound the alarm but at night they are asleep and the cat can take them unawares uh, tubing has more tips garden owners can help by planting bushes for birds to flee in and where they can be easily pursued by cats. Nesting boxes should also be made cat-proof by making sure cats don't find a way of getting on top of them. Tubbing's curfew is not the only attempt to curb killer cats. A paper by Tilburg University environmental law professors Ari Trouwborst and Hans Somsen in the Journal of Environmental Law argued that under the European Bird and Habitat Directives, countries have a legal obligation to protect wildlife, so allowing cats to roam and kill is illegal. Uh, so far, neither the Dutch government nor the European Commission has taken action on the subject. Yeah, so curfews for cats. When the curfews are lifted for everybody else, cats will still be uh, obliged to stay indoors. Yeah, poor yeah. cats. Poor cats. Poor cats. Yeah, I mean, the obvious solution to this seems to be just to, if you own a cat, keep it indoors at all times. Right. I mean, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Certainly, cats, certainly so I don't in the city, that... an urban, urban environment. Yeah, and... yeah. I don't have a cat, so I don't know if that works. Yeah, you can make it a house cat. Right? You make it a house cat. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, there's, there's nothing. Yeah, if, if if it's not, yeah, if it's not in the habit of going outside at night, then then it won't. So that's that's uh, that seems to make sense. But again, I don't know. I don't own a cat. I don't know how it works. Yeah. I'm, I'm uh, a Dini Tubing. He lives in Delft. I will, uh, I will just uh, ring him up and see what yeah, he has to say. See what he's got this. to say about that that proposal. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah but I'm not, I'm not quite sure how it. I mean, if, if, even if you had like a an 8 p.m. curfew for cats, I mean, most cat owners don't, don't know where their cats are for for days on end sometimes. So uh, I'm not quite sure yeah, how exactly. you could expect the the owners to um to take responsibility for that. Yeah. You know, even even if you say like you know, you lock the cat fat at eight o'clock, well if the cat's outdoors at that time and you don't know where it's gone, then yeah, it just means it's stuck out all night. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I I don't have anything to add to this. I don't know how it no, works. No, no, there's, yeah, there's some great responses <laughs> to this story though as well. Uh, really? For, yeah, from people who I think are just upset with the idea of curfew and sort of transferred all their frustrations onto cats. And some, some somebody who memorably responded and <laughs> said, uh, oh, so what's good what are we gonna do next? Are we gonna microchip them? Uh, that's all that I have for you this week this podcast is a production of Dutch News which can be found online at dutchnews.nl we will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes you can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl if you want to help us out please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating you can also back us on Patreon now at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl and you can earn yourself a free shout out on the podcast and we will ask uh, answer all the qu- uh, questions you have yes yeah, so please answer the questions 
please ask us questions. Um, my thanks to Gordon Derek and uh, nobody, nobody else. else. I'm Paul Peters and we'll be back next week. Yeah, Scoop says you're Molly Quell. Yeah, I'm not. Thank you.